We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we are going through a sermon series looking specifically at the parables of Jesus. Um, And so, uh, by way of reminder a little bit, parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, okay? Did you hear... Really? Why in the world would the smoke detector battery go out right at the beginning of my sermon? (laughs) This is remarkably poor timing. Yeah. Okay. Here's the trick. Not a smoke detector. I set you up a little bit. But did I get your attention? Let me put it this way. Did a small little beep get your attention? Did, right? So um, let's say hypothetically, how much of my sermon would you listen to if that was beeping through it all? <laughs> probably, probably not much, right? It's not loud, it's not annoying, um, but it's enough that it, it, it tells you something, doesn't it? That it, it's, a, it's a warning in a sense. It's not a full-blown fire alarm, right? But it's a sound that gives you some idea that something's happening. Um, Specifically, your batteries are low, right? Um, um, If this ever happens in your home, for my house anyway, well, it probably is appropriate. If a fire detector battery was going to go out, I think it would plan to go out right when a pastor is preaching. Like, actually, fire detectors, I think, have minds of their own, and I think they're very insidious. So, Because at my house, um, they go out, it starts beeping at about two in the morning, okay? And all my kids sleep through it, and my wife sleeps through it, and I hear that beep, and I try to sleep through it, and it drills into my head rhythmically until eventually I get up, and I go downstairs, and I listen, and then I think it's coming from upstairs, so I go upstairs, and I listen, and then I think it's coming from the basement, so then I'm down in the basement, and you listen, Uh, Here's the point. Uh, um, I think we are inundated in our life with with sounds and with, in a sense, warnings, right? So a fire detector, that small small little sound just says, your batteries are getting low, Um, you need need to change them. And it's remarkable how effective that small little rhythmic sound is in getting all of our attention, right? Um, But there's other warning sounds, warning signs, things that I think get our attention. So uh, did any of you have your cell phone? If you had your cell phone on last couple weeks, it went off, right? Okay. Uh, Emergency alert system. Um, This is a really fascinating, fun one uh, that is probably more than you want to know. But when pastors are are writing sermons and things like that, I I thought, you know what? I'm going to put that sound on in my sermon, right? I know, some of you are like, don't, please don't, right? Uh, um, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to put the emergency alert system sound in my sermon. Uh, and then I was Googling it, and then it's very hard to find audio of that sound. And then I started finding articles on The Tonight Show uh, and other shows that have used the emergency alert system sound in their live broadcast, and then guess what the government sometimes does to them? Yeah, they, it, they find them, actually. So I'm like, why is it so hard to find this sound? And then I realized that we also 
um, have this live streamed. Um, so I, not only could I not really find the sound, but I think if I used it and ran it, we might get fined as a congregation. I just didn't think that was a good enough uh, cost-benefit analysis for, for the illustration this morning. But here's the thing. I brought some others for you. Okay? Right? Air raid siren. Right? Danger is coming. It's not a sound you'd want to hear, and yet it has benefit. Right? Police car. Right? Um, either, either rushing towards danger or to someone that is injured, right? Um, and it probably depends which side you're on. If you are in the need of help, that sound, <laughs> that, that one sounds like the battery's going out on the police car, but if you're in need of help, that's a wonderful sound, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The sound of a strong, rhythmic heart in a hospital. That's a good sound, isn't it? Right? It's a good sound. Telling us, telling you that your, your life um, is consistent and your heart is beating, right? Okay? Now, anyone who just giggled, I, you gave yourself away a little bit. This is an old school alarm clock, okay? So, because maybe we have some that are like, what is that sound, right? How about this one? Okay? A little more modern alarm clock, right? Uh, and we think about alarm clocks, um, they wake us up for important things, things that we have set aside, and this is something that I want to be at, right? How about this one? Okay. Now, this is one that I, I wonder if our kids actually um, um, know maybe quite as well, but somewhere, I think maybe they pipe this into hospitals when you have infants just so when they grow up, they know it like instinctively that this is the ice, this is the ice cream person, right? So um, here's the point of all of those. When we talk about warnings, we talk about uh, um, even in this sense, like sounds, right? Um, they alert us to something, but here's the thing, not all warnings and not all sounds are equal and not all sounds are necessarily bad. In fact, some of them we would, we would hope to hear. Right? Even in the, the span of those, um, an air raid siren, maybe none of us wants to hear that unless it saves your life. Right? Um, you know, the past few months, uh, we saw the wildfires that ravaged Maui. Right? And what did not go off, right? that could have. Right? Sirens that didn't sound, right? that could have saved lives. Uh, we think about alarm clocks that wake us up for important things that we want to do. And maybe even think about an ice cream truck, right? Um, alerting your children to the fact that there's ice cream, overpriced ice cream nearby um, in sketchy ice cream trucks outside your house, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so um, here's the thing. All of those, they're warnings of different kinds and they warn us towards different things. Now, some of those are maybe more urgent than others. Some of those you maybe want to hear, maybe some of those you don't want to hear, and yet all of them um, alert us to information to things that are happening. Today, in Jesus' parable, towards the very end of his life, he issues a warning. And this one, even as we read the text, is maybe louder and longer and more direct than maybe some of his other warnings, and yet as with all of the warnings that God gives us and even Christ himself on the precipice of his death, that warning is ultimately meant to bring life, save lives of the hearers that heard it at that time and, and for you and I as well. 
And so that's what we want to look at here today when we dig into Jesus' parable of the tenants. Um, We want to look at three things. We want to see God's patience, but we're going to see his warnings, first of all, uh, the payment ultimately that was made, and then the assurance that that gives us in our Christian living. So if you'd like to follow along, that's kind of where we're headed here today. Uh, We're going to walk through our text, walk through this parable, this story, um, look at those warnings, that payment, and ultimately what it leads us, how it leads us um, to be assured in our Christian living. So so if you'd like to follow along, you can. Uh, Our text this morning, you're going to find in your bulletin. I'll have it on the screen behind me here as well. Um, But we need to set the scene just a little bit. The context into which Jesus is telling this parable and this story, um, because um, this is at the very end of his life. Um, And so if it sounds as though the warning bells and the alarms from Jesus in this parable are louder than you normally hear them, it's because it was. It's because of the the context into which he was telling this story and specifically who he was talking to in that moment. He was giving really stark warning um, to those that were gathered around him. Now, this text takes place um, three days before Jesus' death on the cross. So this is Tuesday of Holy Week. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem, triumphant, Palm Sunday, all of those things. Um, We are now on Tuesday of Holy Week. So within three days, um, he will be arrested, tried, and executed on a cross outside the city walls. On Tuesday, some people have called Tuesday Busy Tuesday, Jesus was in the temple courts teaching and preaching as he had done through his entire ministry. And so he's telling this parable, and in front of him were Pharisees, Sadducees, um, religious leaders uh, of the Jewish people. And so he tells this parable, in a sense, almost in the lion's den. In very short order, he would be arrested and his life would be taken from him, right? In very short order, uh, the wheels, in fact, were already in motion that would take his life. And so in the midst of that, he boldly stands in front of the religious leaders, those that were there in the temple courts, in the public, and tells this story, right? And this is essentially what he's saying to them. You're at the precipice, right? You're at the edge. This is a warning to you towards your hearts, towards your faith, and what is about to happen. Uh, Some of you, have you ever seen these signs when you've gone out skiing? Okay, some have, maybe some haven't. Um, This one's actually from Snowmass. Some of our uh, um, other uh, ski hills have this as well. Um, This is is at the point where if you are a, a novice skier, if you uh, just want to kind of go down easy groomers, things like that, um, and drink a little bit of hot chocolate and have a hamburger at lunch, um, you should not go past this sign, (laughs) right? Um, It's a stark warning. It's saying, um, if if you step past this, there are serious dangers, and in fact, your life may be taken from you. In a sense, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in the temple courts on that Tuesday before his death. He's saying to the religious leaders around him, this is it. Like you've heard me preach. You've seen the miracles that are performed. You've watched my ministry. It's led to this moment in this public setting, in the temple courts. This is where I'm at. My message has not changed, but where you stand in relation to it is dangerous. 
And so we see in this parable, even at the very end of Jesus' life, his attempt to warn, to shake them up, to shake them from their slumber and from their hatred, to see exactly who he was, who he is, and ultimately what he was about to do. So let's walk through that. Um, We're going to start with our first few verses here, uh, verses 33 through 35. Jesus says this, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Now Jesus is is kind of setting the scene of what is happening here. And understand what has kind of gone into this. Um, Up to this point, um, the landowner is who bore the brunt of the cost, right? The landowner is the one who set up the field, who did the hard work of planting the crops, um, who even even created um, safety nets around it, right, with a watchtower so that it would be able to produce and those that worked on that farm would be able to work in relative safety, So up to this point, the landowner has done everything. He's done the hard work. He's taken the responsibility. Um, He's he's laid in and put in place the framework for a successful harvest and for an operating, functioning farm. Not one that's falling apart. Not one that that, uh, um, that these these workers were going to have to put all kinds of effort into, but one that worked. And yet, their reaction when he asks for the rent and for the harvest that they have now reaped from the farm that he has put up. They seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Jesus' first warning. Here's what it looks like. His first warning to those Pharisees and to you and I, don't confuse entrustment with entitlement. Okay? And you notice in this lesson, that's what kind of happened there, isn't it? So don't in, confuse entrustment with entitlement. They were entrusted with the vineyard, with the crop that it would produce, with the fact that, that um, the crop would, would not only produce, but also take care of them and their family. So they were entrusted with gifts. They were entrusted with the gift of that farm, but they not, were not entitled to it. They had not borne the cost of it. They had not borne the responsibility of it. Uh, They were not the ones that owned the land or owned the crops. God himself, the landowner, had put that in place. So at the beginning, this is Jesus' first warning to those Pharisees. Don't confuse entrustment with entitlement. And you can see in their reaction that they very much felt they were entitled to this. You can see that this was not a selfless reaction, but rather a selfish one. Well, we've been working. And so God, or landowner, you owe us. In fact, you owe us to such a degree that we don't owe you anything. This is our farm. This is our crop. This is our production. Um, We are entitled to it because we've worked on your behalf. Jesus' first warning to them and to us is, Let's not confuse entrustment with entitlement. They were entrusted with um, um, the crops that were there, right? That would take care of them and their families. But on some level, they weren't entitled to it, right? The landowner owned the property. 
and owned what was contained. What does that mean for us? Well, I think the very same thing, right? In fact, pages of Scripture talk about that. Um, Everything that we have, everything that we own, everything that we, that you are, ultimately comes from our God above, doesn't it? Sometimes we use the word that we're stewards of the blessings that God gives us, that we're managers of the things that he's given. And and, and he has poured out his gifts on us, on you, in, in multiple ways. Through the unique talents and efforts and abilities that you have, the unique settings that you have been placed in, all of those things we we have been given and, and the, the entrustment or the, the, the opportunity, rather, to give glory to our God above. But on some level, we're not entitled to any of that, right? They're simply gifts on loan from our God above. So that's Jesus' first warning, okay? Let's go to our second verse here, verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Okay, we might say, okay, why would the landowner send even more, right? We're going to look at that towards the end. And yet he does, right? He sends even more, and what's their reaction? Treated them in the exact same way. Which brings Jesus' second warning to the Pharisees and to us at times. Don't confuse opportunities with optionality. In the story that Jesus is telling, the landowner owns the property. These are opportunities for them to, to um, produce the crop, to give back to the landowner. But there's not an optionality there, is it? They're not the landowners. Right? They didn't bore that, bear that responsibility. Ultimately, that was the landowners and God above. And I think this is also what Jesus is trying to drive home to the Pharisees that were standing in front of him. Right? Don't confuse opportunities to give glory and honor to our God above with optionality, right? with an option. Right? These are privileges that we have to use the things God's given us for the good of those in our world and those around us. Okay? Jesus gives one more warning, 37 through 39. It says, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Which leads us to Jesus' third warning. Don't confuse patience with permissiveness. Now, um, if some of these alarm bells are loud in your minds and maybe even in our own hearts, um, that's not accidental actually. Remember the context of which Jesus is talking and who he's talking this to. Uh, The religious leaders that were within the temple that were actively um, plotting and scheming to have him put to death. And so he comes and he, in in a sense, is in their face with this parable. (laughs) Saying, these are warnings towards you, toward your hearts, toward your actions, toward where you are at in this very moment. Because Christ knew that they were actively planning his death. Right? And so the last one, Jesus says, don't confuse patience with permissiveness, right? Throughout this count, landowner sends servants and more servants and then ultimately sends his own son. In the parable, we might, and in the story, we might sit back and say, this is foolishness. Like, like how many, this is like three strikes and you're out. Like, why, why would the landowner um, continue to send people to them when they had treated 
those servants in that way. And actually, why would the landowner ratchet up the value of the people that he is sending to them? Because it makes no sense. You wouldn't do it. How many chances would you have given those, um, those tenants? One? Some of you are like, yeah, one. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe two. But in our parable, in our illustration, it's three. But not just that. Actually, the value of those whom the landowner sends becomes greater and greater. And he ends with sending his own son. And we might say, well, that's foolish. Look how they treated the servants. Why would you send something that was near and dear to you? Why would you send your own flesh and blood to them when you knew how they had already treated them, when you knew the track record that was in front of them? And some of this is, none of this is by accident as Jesus is speaking to those Pharisees in the temple courts because what was their track record? Actually, remarkably similar. As God sent prophets who at times were stoned, as God sent uh, um, um, priests, as God sent men of God, as God sent people to them over and over as a nation and oftentimes treated, if not killed. Right? But Jesus' parable and his lesson ends with kind of this crescendo. The landowner says, I am now going to send to you tenants who have not a great track record, that which is most important to me. What's the result? They say, let's kill him. And I think in some sense, because they mistook patience for permissiveness. Maybe the landowner is stupid. Maybe the landowner just simply doesn't care. Maybe the landowner is such an absentee landowner that he doesn't really grasp what's happening here. Maybe the landowner is just lazy. All of those things could have been going through the tenants' minds. And the truth is, none of that was accurate. And so Jesus says to those Pharisees, don't confuse patience of our God above with permissiveness. Jesus is saying God stands with those that are right and just, that God is patient, that he is loving, and that in fact he was going to give and it was in the midst of giving his own son for them. But that patience is not permissiveness. It doesn't mean that anything can go, right? And it was one last warning to them. In the lesson, it doesn't even make a ton of sense. The tenants say, now that he sent the son, we're going to kill the son and somehow think that the inheritance would then be theirs. On the level, even that doesn't make any sense, does it? But what does make sense, and the reason Jesus was telling them that story, the reason those warnings were there was because of the Son. Christ, in his last days, was showing God's patience, but actually, in physical action, was about to lay his life down for the sins of all mankind, and in fact, for the sins of those Pharisees and those teachers that stood before him. And so three warnings, but ultimately, pointing to the Son. Verse 40 and 41. It says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So now Jesus turns the question on those Pharisees that were standing in front of them. Right? It says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
They responded. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Right? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Um, they, had, they, they had understood the parable correctly. And in fact, we'll see a little bit later, they would soon realize who was Jesus talking about? Them. <laughs> right? But it's amazing to see their reaction. Right? Uh, um, the religious leaders who had, who had rejected God's grace, his promise, and in fact were actively plotting to put Jesus to death, what is their reaction to this parable? Say, oh, do away with them. Kill them. <laughs> right? Bring, bring the wretches to a wretched end. It's as if they couldn't say it strongly enough. He should be done with them. He should wipe them off the map. Um, no more chances. No more patience. Uh, um, no more time. They correctly understood the parable. Hard part was they simply didn't understand that it was about them, at least not in this moment, right? They didn't see the warning bells and the sounds that were going off. Here's the amazing thing. Even in the midst of that, what does Jesus and what does our God do? Patience and ultimately payment and sacrifice. Jesus finishes with this. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, it is marvelous in our eyes. So he actually quotes Psalm 118. And in that moment, he would have been turning their minds and their thoughts uh, to the temple mount upon which they were standing and he was teaching. And he talks about the cornerstone, right? Who was Jesus telling them? or talking to them about himself. That same truth is there for us as well, isn't it? There are moments when God gives us warnings, when he, he, he does his best to turn our hearts, right? That's exactly what Jesus was doing there. But in our text, we also see the depth and the magnitude uh, um, and, and the breadth of God's love for you and I, and even for those who are, who are planning and plotting his death in front of them. The landowner sends his son and he would die. Jesus was in their midst, in front of them, and was about to give his life for their sins. And he's done the same for you and I. Right? Uh, um, he, he laid down his life on the cross, not because we are such good landowners, not because um, we give him honor and glory in every moment of our life, not because we are so worthwhile and worthy and so valuable in that sense, like the gifts and the talents that we have, but out of pure love for you and I. Christ came for us, for you, so that your sins would be washed clean. It is, it is unmitigated, it is unrestrained, and some will even say um, it is reckless grace that Christ gave his life for you. Reckless on behalf of the landowner to send his son, but also reckless uh, for the son to lay down his life on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus did in those temple courts and three days later and it's the same thing he has done for you and I. And so I think there are moments when it is appropriate and it's good for us to hear some warning bells, but let us never lose sight of what God has done on our behalf. 
Those warning bells have been ceased and taken away because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Paul even talks about that in in Philippians. He says, "Um, let us not keep our eyes on earthly things, but on eternal things. That that, um, let us not lose sight of who you are and what God has done on your behalf. Namely, sent his son to die for our sins, to wash us clean. And that changes how we view not only the landowner or God above, But to be honest, it also changes how we view the work and our work in the world around us. In Jesus' parable, the landowner was remarkably patient. And some of us would maybe even say the landowner seemed a bit foolish or naive. Foolishness and naivete are not part of our God above, but patience is. And he is patient with us, right? Even as Christ patiently walked to the cross and gave his life there for us. That is the motivation we have to be patient in our lives and to live our lives in glory to him. Not as tenants who would drive him away, but as tenants who would give him glory and honor through the gifts and the fruits that we reap from the vineyard in which we live. Jesus talks about that in the very last verse. He says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. Who is he talking about? Well, you and I, he's talking about faith in Christ and believers, right? And how God's harvest would be bigger and broader than anyone maybe would have ever thought. But he's talking about us, right? Faith in Christ and in the Son that gave his life on the cross for us. And that changes how we view our living too, doesn't it? Christ give us some warnings? Absolutely. But ultimately, Um, He reminds us that he has, in fact, laid down his life for us. And that can change how we live. Uh, Any of you know what this is? Yeah, Golden Gate Bridge, right? Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, There's an interesting story about Golden Gate Bridge as it was being built. Um, About the first half of that that building plan or that construction, um, 28 men died in construction of Golden Gate Bridge. And you can kind of guess how they died. Um, Most of those 28 were falling from the heights um, into the the water below or hitting things on their way down, right? Um, And and no matter how many warnings were given, no matter how many signs, no matter how how many uh, OSHA talks they had about the dangers of falling off of a bridge that's very, very high, um, 28 men lost their life in the construction of the first half of the Golden Gate Bridge. It got to a point um, where the workers at that point had maybe become so timid and so scared that it was actually affecting uh, the work schedule. So ownership said, we're going to do something different. We're going to do something that no one's ever done before. We're going to do something that's a little bit radically different. Um, Guess what they did? Yeah, they built nets. And we're like, huh, that seems to make sense to save people from falling, right? At the time, it, it didn't. It was a cost of $100,000 in the scheme of this project, right? That was a lot of money. Um, they built these nets. Um, and so in the first half of that construction, 28 men died. No matter how loud those warnings were, um, they lost their lives. Second half of that construction, only eight people fell, and none of them died because of the nets. I would call that uh, money well invested, Right? work well done. But here's the really amazing thing about that. Not only did no one die on the second half of the construction of that bridge, but something else interesting changed. 
the efficiency of their construction work actually increased by 25%. Isn't that interesting? Right? Um, so instead of um, thinking that, well, this is going to slow down production and everyone's going to become lazy and we put up these nets and, uh, and, and, and they're not even, they're gonna, it's going to be sloppy work and efficiency is going to lessen, um, the truth is that their efficiency actually increased because they knew that they had a net and they knew that they were safe and they knew that they were able to work on that bridge with confidence and with assurance. The very same thing is true for you and I, and that's what Jesus was trying to drive home to those Pharisees in that temple court on that day, but it's the very same thing we have in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You have a safety net. It was Jesus Christ. He laid down his life on the cross for you, and so what that allows of us is not to sit back, is not to just let alarm bells go off, but to work with assurance, with confidence, knowing that our God above loves us more than anything in this world, in fact, more than his own Son. It allows us to live our lives uh, um, in glory to him, to use the gifts that he's given us for his glory, to share who Christ is, to offer patience to those around us, and ultimately uh, um, to, to produce a fruit that comes from nowhere else other than Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's my prayer for us as we go forward. Jesus' final words had words of warning but they absolutely were words of promise and assurance. And you have the very same thing. Your salvation is not in doubt because of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That allows us to live, to work, and to produce fruit and give him glory in our living. Amen.